Good Wednesday, everyone. Welcome to the VolQuest.com Season Rewind Podcast brought to you by Blue Water Climate Control. Be sure and check them out online at BlueWaterClimateControl.com or you can check them out on Twitter at BlueH2O underscore climate. Today talking about, um, quite frankly, what was a maddening game for Tennessee in some ways. As the Volunteers go to Alabama, they lose 35-13. A tale of two games. Uh, if If Tua Tongue of Aloha doesn't get hurt. Tennessee might get beat four touchdowns or better in this game, but he did get hurt. Tennessee had an opportunity and, and squandered multiple chances. And obviously the big storyline in this game uh, is the Jared Garantano play. So let's just start with that because that's what everybody remembers about this game. Uh, as you reflect back on it, I watched Jeremy Pruitt's um, comments last night uh, or earlier this week when rewatching this game, watched his press conference. He said that he didn't necessarily go rogue at, at his post-game press conference. He said he should have went burrowed on the quarterback sneak instead of gone high over the quarterback sneak. Um, we're months removed to that from that play. Where do you think that play sits, and what's the lingering impact of that play for Jerry Garantano as he moves through into his senior season? I think – I mean, I, I think right now that's probably the thing that Tennessee fans remember first if you ask him about Jerry. Grand If you're asking about one play, now overall, I mean, I think it's kind of been, you know, inconsistent, hasn't lived up to the hype. But if you ask, I think that's been the, the defining play of his career. I mean, it's gotten more attention than, than, than anything else. I think what he was able to do a few weeks later at Missouri, and, and even though, like, there were points in times where, you know, he didn't play great during that closing stretch where Tennessee won seven of eight, you know, and, and you know, won those last – um, six games. I, I think that he did enough as a leader um, and, and handled situations even when he wasn't playing as a, uh, in a leadership style that I think mentally for him, he's gotten past it. Um, you know, that doesn't mean he's going to play better this fall. I mean, he still has to learn to be way more consistent. But I, I do think, you know, um, he moved past it once Tennessee was able to roll off that season-ending run. See, I actually think this play speaks way more about Jeremy than it does anything about Jarrett. Now, everyone remembers that Jarrett's the one that screwed up. And I also think that as the, the further along we get or further away from this play we get, the more honest people will speak about it. The players at the time were just like, oh, miscommunication, we were confused. You go back and watch the play. I had it in my review, and then you see it, especially when you – they run the same play two plays in a row. The play before is the play that was supposed to happen – when Jarrett goes rogue, but what, but by Jeremy not throwing him under the bus after the game, because he knew that they had to have Jarrett Garantano still be mentally somewhere on this football team because Mauer kept getting knocked out and they didn't have faith in Trout, Trout, or Trout. And so they realized, Hey, the rest of the slate's manageable. We can make a bowl game. Our offensive line just got movement against the number one team in the country, not consistently, but well, we ran for 140 yards after we'd only run for 30-some-odd yards. They played the, every snap together this game, which is a key note coming out of this game, that the offense, starting offensive line never came off the field. I thought it spoke to kind of Jeremy's growth as a coach, realizing in the moment he was pissed as hell in that postgame press conference, and he was mad. He obviously grabbed Jarrett's face mask, but he did not just run Jarrett over the, you know, with the bus because he knew he needed him. And he, and he ended up being proven right. They, they don't win 
some of those games down the stretch with a few of the plays that, that JG makes. Now, as AP said, certainly not perfect, has a lot to work on, and you do in terms of spinning it forward. If something like this happens again next season, you wonder if some guys on the team are like, oh, here we go again. But in this moment, the way that I think Jeremy Pruitt and the rest of the team handled the situation ultimately spoke volumes about how Tennessee was able to finish the season, in my opinion. You know, Brent, Jesse brings up a great point from the standpoint of understanding your team, understanding your players, and understanding the pulse of your program. I mean, to me, that Jesse brings up a phenomenal point. Um, maybe the best point Jesse's ever made. Uh, but it was, it was a really good one. That, uh, you know, that just showed the growth as a head coach. You know, I mean, because, I mean, he could have, you know, thrown him under the bus. He could, that thing could have went 100 different directions, and he did not allow it to. And, and, he, and he took some blame there. Um, you know, I, I'll say this. You know, Tennessee showed a lot of fight on that night, a night where, you know, team speed still showed up uh, as, a, as a huge detriment to them. Nigel Warrior, and I get Ruggs can fly, okay? But, I mean, Nigel Warrior looked like he was running the quicksand. Ruggs looked like he was Michael Johnson in the 96 Olympics chasing him down. And then a second Running, running time, around the guy. And then a, a second one was on a Tim Jordan run in the second quarter, heading, you know, uh, you know, going in right as he crossed midfield. If that's anybody else, I'm not saying they score, but you probably get a little more out of it than what you got. And so between those two things and just how bad Steve Levy was, he needs to go back to hockey. Um, you know, I don't ever get to listen to those situations because we're at the stadium, but he called J Jennings Jenkins. He called, uh, you know, uh, Jalen McCulloch, Lavaris Crouch. I mean, it was a, a struggle bus for him. But, I mean, Tennessee did I mean the fight and then the way Jeremy handled it. That's a great point by Jesse. Well, I think it is interesting because, you know, Rob, Jared wins games with a broken hand down the stretch for Tennessee. I think we all left that stadium that night thinking that's the last time we've seen Jared Garantano. That oh, he, was, yeah. he, he was either going to turn in his pads, he was going to transfer. But we, that was it. It was done. But obviously, as Jesse pointed out, Jeremy knew that he might need him down the stretch, and he ultimately did, um, which is – maybe the most remarkable thing out of the season is that they won games with this guy after what happened in that moment in Tuscaloosa. Yeah. I mean, you, the, the last thing you see from Jared, Jared that night is, uh, you know, Jeremy yanking his face mask, clearly, you know, just absolutely blowing him up on the sidelines. And then JT Shrout, you know, who probably got no work in practice against the first team defense the week before, you know, playing Bama, JT Shroud comes in and finishes finishes the game off. I mean, that was pretty – I thought that was a pretty significant statement at the time. I think we all did that, that you benched Jarrett in that situation. And it wasn't just – I mean, it, it was a statement. It wasn't just to give JT, you know, some some work, some mop-up duty. Well, so, I mean, yeah, I didn't think he was going to play again, barring injuries to Maurer and, and Shroud. And to, to, to see him kind of – resurrect himself, I mean, insert the gravedigger, you know, or Jif here, to see him come back and, you know, as Austin said, play like he did at Missouri. You know, win, win in the fourth quarter against Indiana to, to close out the year. I, I would have never have seen that coming. After, after walking out of that stadium at Tuscaloosa, I'm with you, I thought it was And let's tough. not forget about that, that run against Kentucky that got the first down there at the end of the game when Tennessee was trying not to give it back to the Cats. Now, I will say, I will say, I wrote in, in one of my pieces after the game that 
despite conventional wisdom, we probably haven't seen JG's final snap for the Vols because it was just clear that they didn't believe in Shroud. And if Maurer is knocked out, he just had suffered another concussion in two days. Now, I did not write and did not expect that, that, that JG would play hero, you know, four times over the, over the remaining of the season. But I, I do think, again, it was a calculated move by Jeremy's part. And he used kind of the fire and fury that he spit after the game at the officials to kind of, I think, take away some of his anger that he clearly had internally with JG. But this was also Jeremy's first opportunity to say, oh, this is what it's like to get some of the calls when you're Alabama. (laughs) Well, and that's where I was going to go next because Tennessee fans from this game have two things. One, the JG play. The other is the Daryl Taylor penalty and the Tim Jordan hold. Two monumental plays, which almost occurred back-to-back. I mean, they were within about five snaps of each other that occurred. Watched it multiple times. I think the Tim Jordan call is is tough because it's behind the play that, you know, maybe it's an open space, so you throw that there. But that one was a tough call with the momentum you had. And then you watch the Daryl Taylor thing. Maybe in real time it looks bad, uh, but it, that one's hard. That one's hard for Jeremy to swallow. It was hard for Tennessee fans to swallow now. Those two plays, those two flags on a night that was filled with flags, were monumental plays in this game. The, 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 DT, the DT one, I think, is particularly egregious. The Jordan one's bad, but, it, but it's a ticky-tack call that, that does, I think, get made pretty regularly. Uh, the the Daryl Taylor one, I mean, that ultimately is the only drive that Alabama scores a touchdown on when Matt Jones comes in the game. Um, now, I will say this. Jones has some moments in this game where you're like, you realize what, what he was able to do you know, down the stretch for some of these other games for Alabama and why some Tide fans are excited about him. He, can't, he does have a nice arm. I mean, he can throw the ball a little bit. But Tennessee, clearly, because he just hadn't had a lot of experience, Jeremy just started dialing up pressure. And they started hitting him. They started getting in the backfield. And, and that play, the Daryl Taylor play, really did kind of stunt whatever momentum the balls, you know, believe they had in that moment. I, I could kind of go the other way. I mean, I don't think it was – I don't think that, you know, Daryl's, you know, was, you know, over the top or anything. But, I mean, he, he, he gave the official a chance to throw that flag because he did put both his hands on him and he pushed. It was mild. It was – I mean, I, would, I, I don't think it's a penalty. But by the letter – I mean, your, your fifth-year senior guy, I mean, I put that one on DT. I mean, he gave the, the ref a, a chance to make a decision. I thought that Jordan, you know, behind, had, I mean, just had no impact on the play. And Tennessee goes from second one at the, at the one-inch line to, you know, first and goal from the 20 or 15. I mean, I thought that was brutal. But, I, I mean, I thought Daryl, you know, kind of put himself in a position where he gave the ref an opportunity. And, you know, I, I didn't – again, I don't think it was a penalty. You know, I agree with Todd Blackledge, you know, on the call. But also, you know, DT kind of opened up the door for that to happen when he, when he gave the little two-handed shove into the back. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 didn't, I didn't think that officiating crew had a good night for, in general because everything – I mean, the, the whole first quarter was a flag fest for both teams. I mean, they, they, they called everything that night. That's as, that's as tight as you'll see a football game called. Uh, the, the things that went against Tennessee seemed to come at the most inopportune times for them. Uh, more so than the flags that, that well, they, were against Alabama. They, they jumped off sides twice on first to goal for the five. Right. The phantom yeah. goal line whistle when Jawan was in 
the Wildcat was a big play. Yes. Because they, 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 stop, they stop it. Alabama looks confused. They stop the play, and then Tennessee has a false start the next play. Um, that was also a drive where, again, JG, it wasn't just the goal line play in this game. Also, that, that's when you rewatch the game. Everyone remembers that play. He misses the double move. Juwan Jennings is oh, right so a double move. That was so bad. Double move touchdown. He overthrows him by 10 yards. Uh, Tim Jordan runs a backside wheel route. JG never looks at him. That, that had to have been one of the first two reads on, on a play when he got man coverage against that. And he got, it's, so that was it, – everyone remembers the goal line play because of the calamity. But there were some other moments that JG left some big plays on the field. Let me ask you this, too. and Maybe I'm wrong here. How many times does the sprint out of the huddle to the line work? <laughs> the sugar huddle? I mean, look, I mean, and, and it's fourth and goal at the one-yard line. Unless you're going to come out of that huddle and suddenly jump into a spread formation with your jumbo package, your jumbo personnel, Alabama's already in their goal line pack. I mean, there is no substitution there. So what's the gain by sprinting to the huddle? You're not catching anybody off guard. I've never – and every team does this. This is not a Jim Chaney thing. Every team does this. Can anybody explain what's the alleged advantage out of doing that? Does it ever work? I mean, it Auburn has had success with it at times, but it does not seem like it is a particularly efficient play without – you know, this is obviously just anecdotal. We don't have any data right. in front of us. It uh, just feels like it never works. It just Now, maybe if you're in the middle of the field and you can come – take your personnel and go crazy formation and change it up. But, you know, I don't think you're catching anybody off guard when you do those things. Seems like a lot of times you jump off sides and you create mistakes for yourself when you do that. That's just, you know, that's just kind of what it, what it looks like to me in that deal. So I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of that. The other bizarre thing from this game or interesting thing from this game, this is Tim Jordan's best game. Oh, yeah. That's, okay. I, I, I wrote that down a couple of times. And he but, played a I mean, lot of close. snaps. But, but then as the season went along, you, you know, there's, there's less and less Tim Jordan, and it doesn't feel like Tim Jordan's, you know, in the, in the top of where they are with the running back room right now. I mean, isn't it kind of bizarre that, <laughs> that against this team, this Alabama team, he was kind of the star that night offensively, the most consistent guy offensively, yet he's not heard from down the stretch of the season? I mean, to me, it just kind of showed, you know, how they felt like they didn't really have a set guy. You know, I mean, there were times where Ty Chandler was the guy. There were times early in the season where Eric Gray was the guy. Yeah, I mean, I just felt like, you know, I guess I won't say they don't have a guy because I don't think that's fair. But it's kind of like the old age-old adage, you know, if you got two quarterbacks, you got no quarterbacks. I mean, like, you know, unless you got a guy that's consistently your starter, you guess you don't really have a starter. I mean, um, they they kind of week by week it would change. You know, Ty's role would change, Tim's role would change. Eric Gray, you know, was there, disappeared, reemerged. I mean, it, 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 that's just to me. It just kind of summed up where they were in the running back room at the time. And and I do think going into this season. Uh, unless Eric has made a, you know, monumental leap uh, without really playing football in pass protection. Tim Jordan is still the, the, the room's best pass protector. Now, does that keep him off the field, though, because they still think that Eric is, is more dynamic with the ball in his hands as kind of, a, you know, a, a, a release valve option? Uh, you know, I don't know. But, 
you know, he plays a lot in this game, not only because of his running efforts, and he played 44 snaps. Eric Gray only saw 10 snaps, Ty Jordan 14. So the, the, the way that kind of, you know, yo-yoed over the next six or seven weeks is pretty interesting. Again, I noted this earlier, but I put this. The offensive line was hardly perfect. They committed a million penalties. Wright and Morris got tagged a bunch of times for penalties. But they were able to push the pile. And there was moments where they created huge holes. Trey Smith was really good. Brandon Kennedy was effective. Um, and, again, they'd rushed for less than 30-something yards against Alabama the previous two seasons, and they rushed for almost 140 in this game. And that's something that the offensive line was never dominant the rest of the season, but they at least kind of showed that they had a pulse. And that's why I think they were able to, you know, continue to kind of build on what they did the previous week and that final drive at Mississippi state. And then what we see, you know, the, the commensurate next six weeks during this winning streak. Let me, let me ask this question to, to all of you here. I think we'll all agree that the win over Mississippi state in, in the previous week that we talked about last week, save Tennessee's season, okay? Because if you don't win that one, then you're talking about one and six. Who knows where you are? I mean, that was a monumental win. But did Tennessee learn more, gain more confidence from this loss to Alabama than they did from the win against Mississippi State? I think so. I think they learned that – Because they punched back. Yeah. Again, they fought back, you know, 100%, uh, you know, to quote the great Jesse. Um I just they, they and and not only just one or two guys. You saw several guys kind of claw back in this game, fight back in this game. Um, you know, and so I thought the team as a whole just kind of rallied around its head coach. Everybody kind of has made these comments. The fans have made these comments that you know it was that night that Jeremy Pruitt became Tennessee's head coach because he saw what it was like to go against. Uh, you know, the, the referees in Tuscaloosa on this side of the uh, sideline, you know, obviously he had the three timeouts called right before the half. And, and, you know, that, you know, it doesn't take much to get an Alabama kicker to miss a field goal. That's pretty routine, but um, you know, I, it just felt like everybody started to kind of mesh together um, on a, on a night where Tennessee, you know, still lost. I mean, he galvanized, I think AP's right. I mean, he galvanized, both his team and the fan base with some of those comments after the game. Yes. And, and you know, I, I again, I, I pulled up something that I wrote. I said, you know, college football is weird sometimes. You can lose by 22 points to your rival, and yet folks are kind of, you know, like, all right, let's go. And that ended up being what happened. You know, they, they, they really did kind of rally uh, around the fact that it looked like it was going to be Katie bar the door in that game after the first – three minutes where they Alabama scores immediately and then you got a tip interception. But Tennessee clawed and clawed and and you see kind of some of, of the life that I think and the excitement that uh fans have going into this season in terms of some of the defensive linemen. Greg Emerson flashes in this game. Uh you know, um this was a nice Kenneth George game at time. Bryce Thompson did not have a good game. Uh, but George comes in as competitive. I will say one note to kind of spin it forward. AP, curious on your thoughts on this. We know what Tennessee's doing at inside linebacker on the recruiting trail right now. They're going for kind of more of these hybrid, smaller guys that can really move laterally. It's interesting in that Crouch plays a lot inside in this game and is not good. This is not a good Cravars-Crouch game, and I do think that's going to be something to watch this season because teams can't if, – if it's crouching the inside, 
he's good at run ball, you know, hit ball, but if he's got to move laterally, that is not a strength if he gets spread out. And that I think, you know, who else is going to play next to Henry T because they're obviously recruiting the Terrence Lewis's, you know, they'd like to land Aaron Willis here shortly. You know, some of these guys that they're recruiting that kind of fit that mold of these different type of linebackers. That's not what Crouch is. And that shows up, I think, big time in this game, in my opinion. Well, well and again, go, for, go ahead. For me, I, uh, I don't know about you, Brent, but I, I, Kovars Crouch to me feels almost like K Ron Calvert. Yeah, Kovars Crouch has played a little more football because K Ron kept getting injured, but he hadn't played a whole lot of defensive football. Understanding the defensive side of things. And, you know, we all saw in year one, Tennessee struggles, and I thought they were much better in year two. And there's that notion out there that in year two, you will be better in this defense. It's just, it just takes a little bit to learn. So who knows? Maybe maybe it's as simple as that. I'll say this. He was going to miss spring no matter what. So, you know, does it level the playing field when nobody else, you know, that he would have been competing against got any practices either? Um, you know, I, I think that they have high hopes for Q. But I still think that he's got to play more defensive football to become the player that everybody wants him to be. Yeah, I think my biggest question with Crouch is: is he instinctive enough? Because I mean, he's not. Can he get? Can he get those instincts that you need to that you need to have to move laterally? Because it's not just whether he's quick enough or not quick enough. It's about whether or not your your first step is the right step. Is he instinctive enough to take the first right step? And how much experience does he need? to get to that point where he's got those instincts. I think we all wonder that. I think that's a good point about the concerns that you have with, with the linebacker position because, you know, you know, they're playing this game at one point in the first half without Henry T and without Batuli in this game, uh, which was certainly a challenge for, for Tennessee just to get to the halftime to get Henry T in the lineup. What I will say, though, from a positive moving forward, you mentioned Greg Emerson, Jesse. Rob, for three plays to start the second half, Darrell Middleton looked like an NFL football player. Yeah, he's, he's one of the guys that, I mean, I certainly – I thought flash in this game. And just – I mean, I, I just overall thought this is the first time since what, – what year was it? Was it 2013? I mean, where Tennessee was competitive with, with Alabama. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? We're, yeah, uh, where, where you had the freshman with Jack Jones and, and, and Chance Hall down 15. there. Was it 15? Okay. Yeah. Was it that recently? Yeah. Oh, wow. Time 13, flies. 13 was Butch's first year. All right. So, yes, this is the one where Tennessee actually scored and took the lead right, in the yes. fourth quarter with, mm-hmm. with Dobbs and company. All right. So, I mean, they're, they're having – we've not seen many competitive games. I just thought they were obviously – they weren't intimidated. I mean, you mentioned Middleton. I mean, I think those, those were one, one of the guys. I mean, you, you already talked about Tim Jordan. I was just – I mean, it, I was just surprised. I mean, Tennessee was – I mean, they could have won this football game. I mean, after the Tua injury. I mean, I don't think Tennessee keeps pace with them if Tua plays. But, I mean, 35 to 13 is completely misleading for how, you know, how in this game Tennessee was once, you know, Matt, once Matt Jones was under center. I think the big, one of the big questions, Jesse and Austin, is with, with Jimmy, look, Tracy Rocker's guys, their effort got better throughout the season. We saw Emerson flash here with Jimmy Brumball coming in. Can he push a guy like Middleton's buttons? Can he push them the right way to get consistency out of Middleton? Because, again, you look at those three plays, if you're an NFL scout, and you say that's an NFL defensive lineman. But then you're going to watch a lot of other plays where there's not. Can, 
can he get the consistency he needs out of some of those guys up front? Jesse, if they become consistent up there and don't just flash, that's a chance they got a chance to be a pretty good defensive line this fall. Oh, if absolutely. You're talking about also adding back a guy in, in Emmett Gooden. You know, just another body that you rotate in there. I think, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see because of the COVID pandemic deal, but one would surmise that a, a guy like Greg Emerson would get a little better, that Karat Garland would get a little better. Now, again, growth is not linear, so it doesn't mean that that's guaranteed. Not all guys are definitely always going to trajectory up. They could have some curves there, but – I mean, I think you like the depth, you like the upside. I'm not sure there's a – I don't think they have a game changer, you know. But if they do, Middleton might be the closest one that they have. Uh, and if he can tap into that, he's a guy that could, you know, have an NFL uh, ceiling ultimately if he can be a guy that can get – because part of it is can they make plays. Right. I mean, they got some guys that can eat space. They got some guys that can, you know, uh, shred blocks and, and shed – um, when Tennessee's doing some blitzing and other stuff, but can a guy win one-on-ones and make plays? I think that's kind of the biggest question with this group right now. And if you can have more success along the defensive line and that group becomes more efficient, more uh, just better overall, that does to me cover up a little bit of the deficiencies of who, who would play beside Henry T on a consistent basis. I'll say this, can they get anybody on that defensive line that's a senior to – quote-unquote, have the Albert Hainsworth contract year. And I don't mean set the world on fire, but play above his head because he knows that, you know, NFL draft stock and getting paid at the next level is on the line. And sometimes you see that. You know, obviously you see those guys play, you know, in their last year or as a junior that the light comes on because they're seeing, um, you know, NFL potential dollars in front of them. I think we all agree that a guy like Middleton, has the best NF, one of the best NFL bodies of any of the defensive linemen on this team. Kind of my final thought, sort of going out the door here as we finish, we kind of wrap things up with this, is I look at this, and I look at this game as Tennessee's competitive in the trenches. They're physical enough. They're starting to grow physically in this game. And you think that that growth, while it may not be linear, is going to be – some growth is going to be there going into this season. And it gets back to what I've always believed about this team. Their quarterback play this fall is going to take them to where they go. It's going to be all about when everybody wants to know numbers, can you compete in the East, this, that, and the other. It's all going to be about what their quarterback play is going to be. That's my overriding theme coming out of this game because I think this game proved some things in the trenches and created continued questions at the quarterback position. Which is why we've continued to see – threads on our board or on Twitter or here on radio call-in shows, the, the fear of putting JG back out there because of what happened in this game. The fans have not – maybe JG's moved past it. Fans have not. And, and fans, you know, still wonder if, if JG can actually put together a consistent season of football. And I, my it, last it, thought – Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. And, and, and it's, a val- it's a valid concern. Um, but Brent's right. If, if Tennessee's quarterback play is really good, they can win nine, ten football games this fall, even with a tough schedule. If it's bad, they can win six. Yeah, I will say just as a, as a, as a kind of cursory note to that, quarterback play is obviously going to be the most important. We've hit on who's going to rush the passer, whether it's does a defensive lineman emerge or somebody else, Kayvon Bennett, what have you. 
another thing that's kind of that shows up in this game, and we've obviously talked about it a bunch, but I do think it bears repeating. Who's going to be the top target? Are they going to? Is it going to become this egalitarian that everybody spreads the ball around, whatever? Because they force feed Jawan the ball in this game. He gets twelve targets in this game. The rest of the wide receivers, running backs, tight ends combined had eleven. You know, I mean, like when when they when they wanted to make a play, they went to fifteen, and that safety valve is not going to be there next year. And so, can somebody else emerge? Obviously, Callaway was another guy that caught a bunch of balls. So I just – the quarterback plays certainly, you know, number one, but who they're throwing to is – I think it's going to be pretty darn important because they're missing the number one guy who, who bailed them out of a heck of a lot of plays and also gained them a lot of cheap yardage by leading the country in broken tackles. Rob, as we go out the door, your final thoughts. I just – I mean, I completely agree with you, Hubbard. I mean, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. You know, JG has a chance to you know, kind of – determine what his legacy is going to be here at Tennessee. Is he going to be a, you know, a guy that people remember is just you know, never having found any level of consistency or is he going to be, you know, a guy that, that, that finally was able to put it all together in, in his senior year for a team that, you know, outside of the legitimate concerns that Jesse mentioned, I mean, that receiver certainly edge, but I mean, a team that looks more prepared to win and compete in the East and Tennessee has in, in a number of years and, I mean, can can he put it all together and and you know kind of ch- change the way that that this fan base thinks about him as somebody who never either somebody who never you know fulfilled his potential or somebody who you know kind of writes a, a, a happy ending to a, a career that's been really rocky and I, I think all those questions are you know people would be excited about Harrison Bailey anyway but I think that JG's inconsistency at this point of his career is why there's such kind of a fervent hope that you know, the freshman can come in and play early. Yeah, I think it's going to be, again, a, a game where Tennessee learned a lot about themselves to give a lot of fans hope, and then there's the big elephant in the room, question mark, and that is the play at the quarterback position. But we know where Tennessee goes from here. We're going to talk about those in the coming weeks as we look more b- back on this last season and talk about how it affects this upcoming season. Uh, each Wednesday in our Season Rewind podcast. In East Tennessee, you need a reliable heating and air system designed for your home and our climate. You need a team that's trained and held to the highest of standards. You need solutions, not sales pitches. There's a lot of heating and air companies out there in East Tennessee. Only one name you need to remember, that's Blue Water Climate Control, veteran-owned, family-operated. When you need a new system or a major repair, Blue Water's not going to send out a salesman. They're going to send out an expert who's going to give you what you need and all of your options regarding your air conditioning and heating system. Whether it's repairing that system, replacing that system, whatever you need, they're going to go and break it down for you from an expert standpoint, not a salesperson standpoint. Remember, they have financing, same as cash, even rent to own. You can call them today at 865-299-2290 or visit them at bluewaterclimatecontrol.com to make an appointment. Blue Water is an authorized dealer of American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning. For Jesse Simonton, Rob Lewis, and Austin Price, I'm Brent Hubbs. Thanks for joining us. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, everybody.